welcome to Fandom Media. All right, Fandom Media is here with a new show, Better Call Saul. We're starting at season three, of course, because that's what's current. If this is your first time listening to Fandom Media, I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea and Sean, and we're going to get right to it because there is a lot to talk about this episode. We got a kind of play catch up based on the fact that this is a season three and because of the Breaking Bad story arcs that relate to this show and based on the fact that it has the same creators. So let's start off by talking about a little of that and then we'll get into the actual episode one plot. All right, guys, take it away. Yeah, personally, I watched Breaking Bad as it was airing. I always loved it. It's a masterpiece. It really is. But I like Better Call Saul even more. But I have to say that it isn't exactly fair because Better Call Saul has all of Breaking Bad to build off of. Mm -hmm. Plus, the creators got to learn in the process and get even better at filmmaking. But also, for me personally, I just like the character and arc of Jimmy McGill into Saul Goodman more than I like Walter White into Heisenberg. I like a fast talker, a witty character like Jimmy a lot. I'm mostly with you, Shea. I think that Better Call Saul is better than Breaking Bad. And the first season, I had that feeling, and I felt kind of blasphemous for thinking it. I didn't dare say it to anyone. But now I'm just comfortable saying it. It's just a better show. (laughs) I was a little behind with Breaking Bad as it was airing. I didn't start watching it till the last season was on, and I was able to catch up with all the prior seasons and watch the last season as it was airing. And it had to be pretty good to get me to watch all that, and it was prompted by all my friends and all the awards and everyone talking about how great it was. And it was really great. But as Shay was saying, they have all those years of experience. It's the same crew. It's everyone that made Breaking Bad is making Better Call Saul. The same writers, the costume designer, the choreographer, the music. Like, it's all the same people. They just have all this extra experience and probably a better budget. And maybe a better vision because they know where Better Saul... A better vision because they know where Better Call Saul is going. More specifically, they have maybe some guidelines to work with for their creativity and also, like she has said, I think I just like these characters more. It's a little more. It's a little easier for me to relate to this character struggling with his direction in life than it is for me to relate to this character becoming a drug lord. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it was a very riveting plot line that they had for Walter White. You know, dealing with having cancer. That first season was kind of like a, a an interesting story to tell. You know, and why? And you could see how he, he comes into this life of crime. But in the end, especially once you get through the third or fourth season, I'm no longer relating to Walter White, you know? But I'm I'm relating to Saul. I'm, I'm relating to, to Jimmy. His character is a little bit more of an everyman character, you know? Definitely. Meta Elements. A couple of things we like to talk about in our episodes are title significances and references in the episode. This episode had a reference in the title. The episode's title was Mabel, and of course we saw The Adventures of Mabel, the book, which is a reference to Vince Gilligan's mother who used to read this book to him, as it turns out. In fact, there's probably going to be a lot of subtleties in this show. That's one thing the creators of this show do is put a lot of care into every detail of the show. We'll talk about a lot of that. One of the main things that they bring out that I like to look for is the color schemes. Last season, the first letter of each episode spelled out... Frings back. Yeah, which they thought was this neat little thing that they were doing that no one would catch, but the fans caught it, you know. Really uh, quickly. Yeah, which also, I think, says something about how devoted the fans of this show are, but they're going to feed us. It's clear to me that every detail is there for a reason. Every piece of clothes that they're wearing, the lighting in every room, every line every character says, 
they are very carefully piecing together this work of art. One counterpoint to that is that someone apparently noticed that the crossword that Mike was doing was from August of 2016. Okay, so maybe not every detail. (laughs) That's funny. Some things just slip by. There's a couple of references to 80s movies. One kind of obvious one was the Karate Kid with the wax on, wax off reference that Chuck didn't get. What is going on there? (laughs) That just shows what a square Chuck is, I guess. So it's a funny way to make us dislike Chuck even more. I did wonder if it was him not... Just not knowing, he didn't see the Karate Kid, didn't know who Mr. Miyagi was, or he just wasn't wasn't going to let Saul cheer him up. He's just, oh, you know, yeah, being yeah. stubborn. I wasn't sure which it was. Yeah, you're right, it could be that. Then there's Top Gun. When he's talking to the Air Force captain. Look what that did for your numbers, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then at the very beginning of the episode, when Gene is reading a book, it it's David Niven's memoir, The Moon's a Balloon. Yeah. The moon's a balloon. That guy's quite a character, by the way. David Niven was a British actor who, he won Best Actor at one point. He was in 80 Days, Around the World in 80 Days. And he was also, not just in World War II, but he was like a commando. And he was really, had quite a life. And it makes sense Saul might be reading his book because apparently he was a tax exile, which in the 70s, British income taxes on the wealthy was 80 plus percent. And so a lot of British, including David Bowie, for example, they just left England. They All just the left the country. Yeah, <laughs> yeah David Niven, yeah, yeah. David Bowie, yeah. Just to avoid these extremely high tax there rates. There was an extra tax on David's. It was 85% for them. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we see Saul, who's sort of in exile, having lived a bit of an adventure, now reading a book about someone who's in exile, having lived a bit of an adventure. Plus, Jimmy really seems to like movies and TV, and he likes... Pop Actors, culture. Pop culture yeah. in general. So he would like reading this memoir, this tell-all tale. Yeah. We, of course, watched the Talking Saul after show, and there are a couple cool tidbits that we mostly incorporate into our discussion, but a couple of neat ones are that we're going to see another Breaking Bad character in episode two that isn't Gus. We already know we're going to see Gus. I think if you're listening to this, if you're following the show, you know that Gus Fring is back. But we know we're going to see another character. There have been clips released of the next episode so i have a pretty good clue on who it is but we can't talk about it if you want to know just look up better call saul season three episode two clips and you'll know pretty quickly another bit of insight that was reinforced in this talking saul episode was how the showrunners originally envisioned better call saul being more of a comedy like a half hour comedy (laughs) slowly as they hashed it out it transformed into a drama and seems like maybe it will become a tragedy even but there are some clips, some early promos, like a, a commercial that Saul's doing for his business. And you can see in that that it was a lot more humorous. It was definitely looked like something that would be for a comedy, not a drama. Now that there's no humor in this, it definitely has its funny points. But the drama seems to be what this is really about. Narrative. A notable feature of this episode is that both of the main plot lines, meaning the Jimmy plot line and the Mike plot line, both pick up within seconds of where they left off in the previous season. Except for the interlude to the future Jimmy. Gene, according to his name tag, of course, in the black and white version of his future, of course, is what I'm talking about. It's Cinnabon restaurant where he's the manager, where he faints. But it's the longest scene we've had. He, of course, has this encounter with the thief and points him out. And clearly he feels guilty about pointing him out. And that's... Interesting that they're starting to develop this future version 
of the character. Yeah, yeah. Gene silently points, and he seems shocked that he even did so at his own finger doing it. And then he still can't resist at the very end telling him to get a lawyer. Yeah, I love that scene. When it first started, I immediately refreshed in my mind the fact that they were doing this, this black and white flash forward. I was like, oh yeah, I forgot all about this. But this one seemed to go on longer than the others, and I started to stir in my mind that I guess they could go a lot of directions. It's a neat little tool, a neat way they could enhance the show or carry the show on. I'm curious about how they're going to do it in general, but I did really love that moment. I appreciate in general that the show is willing to be patient and set a tone and create this mood, and it all of a sudden... What seems like us just getting a slice of Jimmy's future life as Gene, suddenly it becomes riveting. Suddenly it becomes very intense. You have this uneasiness in your stomach. What's he going to do? And it was with no action, no guns. It was very Mm -hmm. calm. No dialogue until get a lawyer. Right, exactly. But it was very tense and very explosive when he did stand up all of a sudden that was, that was an amazingly executed scene yeah it was really surprising too because his previous two black and white future scenes were just drudgery he was mm-hmm. just being a cinnabon manager looking miserable and the second time he gets locked out and, and it's just and he writes his name into the wall yeah it's just yeah. really ordinary guy problems nothing dramatic or spectacular or particularly interesting it's just to show you where he's at and in that way it's interesting but the circumstances themselves are just very as bland as they can be so this was a nice little setup and one thing this scene sort of demonstrates is that jimmy or anyone can't just stop being who they are it was too strong in him as much as he knows he needs to not have interaction with police he couldn't let it go he couldn't you know have that kid be sent off in a system that he knew how to manage he had to say something i I thought it was great It remains to be seen why he collapsed, however, whether he actually fainted, whether he is going to start scamming people again. I can't help but wonder with Jimmy, with Saul, whether he has some longer game planned, whether he decided in that moment, I'm going to get workers' compensation and stop working here. (laughs) Or who knows what. Maybe he had a... Maybe his sugar's low. Maybe he has diabetes. <laughs> He's got a lot of sugar on his face there. Be... He's doing it wrong. You definitely wouldn't think someone who works at Cinnabon would. <laughs> but it's definitely weird for someone to spontaneously just collapse. Yeah, maybe it's just like a reaction, you know, catching up to his, you know, adrenaline pump moment with the police there. And he yeah. catches up with him. I don't know. Maybe he's overwhelmed with fear. Maybe he's starting to think. Man, they're going to call me as a witness. Who knows what's spinning through his mind? It's fun to think about. I just think it's too many Cinnabons. <laughs> <laughs> so in the main timeline narrative here, we have the tape recorder plot with Chuck recording Jimmy mostly, but not completely admitting wrongdoing. It's a little vague as we see... He hedges a little bit. Exactly. He says, you feel better. He says, I guess, when he's actually confronted with, you realize you just committed a felony. He's like, I guess. You feel better, right? It's it's not. It's definitely not direct. And that, of course, is almost certainly going to matter. It even comes up later in the episode. At the time, Jimmy is waxing nostalgic. <laughs> waxing. Just like the wax on, wax off joke, right? Mm-hmm. And he's trying to get him to bond over that, but Chuck realizes what's happening and suddenly goes cold. Yeah, it was kind of a sad moment. It's uh, it's understandable for Chuck to be upset with Jimmy, but it's understandable for Jimmy to be upset with Chuck, too. And you just kind of wish they could just be brothers, but there's too much external stuff straining their relationship with each other. 
So we go to the scene where Chuck presents Howard with the tape. And this is really neat because immediately Howard recognizes how it would be handled in court. They're lawyers, you know, they know the system. And he's like, this isn't good enough. It's, I believe you now. It's enough for me to believe you personally. But what, what are we going to do with this? We can't do anything with it. And of course, Chuck says, well, I know, I have a plan. And, you know, we're, we're not sure about that. A lot of discussion trying to think about what Chuck's plan might be exactly. But one neat bit of insight we got from that actor was his character generally keeps his hands clean. He's in charge of this law firm, but we don't actually see him going into court arguing cases. He's more of the manager, right? Well, now his hands are mixed up in this. He, he even told Chuck, I wish you told me before you did this. He does Now he's, whether he wants to or not, he's kind of tied up in this thing that Chuck's got going with Jimmy. Yeah, he's got information that he would rather not have. Yeah. He cares about the truth of this, but not at the risk to anything professional whatsoever. He's, yeah. He has much different priorities than Chuck does here. Right. And in this scene, Howard brings up how this is no good in the in the court of law. It's no good in the court of public opinion. What do you expect to use this for? And it seems that Chuck does have a plan to use it in the court of public opinion in some way. It seems like court is out of the picture for sure. But as we see, he tricks Ernesto into listening to this tape. A little snippet of it, but just the right snippet. Yes. <laughs> yeah, very clever. And then he's just very panicky. He's like, you've heard this. Oh, and Ernesto is such a sincere, naive kid who has previously shown loyalty to Jimmy. You know, he came. For, he did it for good reasons, I suppose. It was to not cause to to prevent conflict. But Chuck knows about it, and Chuck is also vindictive, and he may be intentionally using Ernesto not just to get back at his brother, but to get Ernesto a bit as well. I hadn't considered that, but that could be also, yeah. Which is pretty tough because Ernesto is otherwise extremely helpful to Chuck but then again so is Jimmy both of them have taken yeah. care of Chuck a lot yeah. <laughs> and he does this you know doesn't seem to take that into account when he judges them so I thought a little bit about what Chuck's plan could be because he clearly has a plan as he leaves this conversation with Ernesto that he has what the creators called the mustache twirl when he tosses the tongs and he <laughs> yeah. has a little pep in his step it's a perfect touch yeah exactly and so he definitely has a plan but my question is whether he thinks Ernesto is going to tell Jimmy about this because he knows he's close with Jimmy whether he thinks Ernesto is just going to be separated from Jimmy because he's gonna suspect him of this and he's just trying to cut off Jimmy's limb so to speak or whether he thinks this could be his end to getting Mesa Verde to drop Kim if he can't bring the information to them but maybe if Ernesto and the buzz hits them it's important to recognize that from Chuck's point of view, Kim could be culpable. She could be part of the forgery and the scheme that Jimmy perpetrated. He's fully willing to believe that Jimmy did it all on his own. But from his perspective, he doesn't know. And Kim certainly benefited from it. Yeah, I would think that he wouldn't expect her to do it. Although, whether she was actively involved or not, she most likely is at least aware that Jimmy has done this. It makes sense for Kim to be aware, even if it's after the fact, or even if she didn't take part, you know, an active role in doing this, it still makes sense for her to have gained the knowledge of what went down. Fandomedia.reviews. An interesting scene later in the episode is Jimmy having a confrontation with the Air Force captain who sees the commercial, figures out that he's been duped, and obviously is frustrated, angry. A couple noteworthy things that happen in this scene. First of all, Jimmy loses his composure for a minute, and that really stands out because it's a 
really rare thing. He's always got his, like, calm guy, doesn't lose his temper facade going. Yeah, at the beginning of the episode, we got a flashback to that captain and that filming thing that Saul did. And I was like, hmm, that's weird. Are they going to tie that back in? And sure enough, they did. And I have a feeling that's not the end of it. Again, Mm. like we pointed out, everything's in here for a reason. I feel like they're setting something up with this captain. It's going to go somewhere. I'm interested where it is. The wheel's going to turn. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It was a neat parallel, too, by the way. The thing that seemed to get Jimmy, that moment when he kind of lost it for a second, was when this captain was kind of... I don't want to say this, judging him from a point of superior morality, kind of like Chuck was. I think there was like a parallel being drawn between these characters, at least in Jimmy's mind, if not by the creators of the show. During this argument, I was definitely thinking that it was a good thing that their offices are soundproof. That's right, because it's a leftover dentist office, right? Yeah, don't want to hear the screams of the patients from (laughs) inside the lawyer's office or the dentist's office. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think one of my favorite images from last season was the rainbow in their office i just one it's a beautiful image but i think it has some great symbolism behind it even more so now that we have half a rainbow in this scene jimmy himself is painting over the rainbow while kim is losing herself in her work and the more she's working the more the rainbow gets to disappear by his own hand And it made me think of the Rainbow Connection, which is no more between them. And we see that there's a strain between them. And also the connection of the Rainbow to the other side of the Rainbow and not being in Kansas anymore and how (laughs) Kim has the Kansas City thing. And I just wonder how much of this is like they're halfway to not being in Kansas anymore. Yeah, that kind of thing. It's, yeah, it's definitely a very deep image. We also have Jimmy saying that there's going to be something else there. Wait till you see what's next. And I expect something very patriotic. That's my (laughs) gut feeling. I agree. Like a big flag with Fudge Talbot himself and Jimmy saluting an eagle or... I he could know. he could paint in the captain too, right? <laughs> so when the captain's commander comes to be upset and it looks like the captain's involved in it all. <laughs> Kim is working really hard. We see a lot of scenes of her just deliberating over a semicolon. Obsessing or even. Obsessing, yeah, obsessing over a semicolon versus a period versus the hyphens and her morality. Clear yeah. That, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's clear that she's both put in a huge volume of work on this project, but she's also extremely careful about the details, especially given what happened. And like you say, she's deeply disturbed about the whole situation from a moral standpoint and doesn't really know how to feel about it. Yeah, she has taken on some of Jimmy's clients even, and she won't turn them over to Jimmy because that's not how you do things. Yeah, it was... Another really telling moment there and a quick little couple lines of dialogue. But to Jimmy, it was such an easy thing. Oh, yeah, I'll just take those clients back. She's like, no, technically, legally, you can't. To him, it's like, oh, whatever, let's just do it. It doesn't matter. No one will ever know. But to her, she's just going to follow the law no matter what. And Jimmy didn't fight that point smartly. He didn't fight that point. But it was a good demonstration of the difference in their outlooks on their lives, careers, the law, etc. I also thought it was really funny that... Kim uses double spaces when she types, just like Rebecca, that finicky girl at Jimmy's old firm, was telling him, we use double spaces here. (laughs) I'm sure it's pretty standard. It looks clean for these legal briefs. So speaking of those clients that Kim wasn't going to just turn over to Jimmy, it was funny to hear that old lady with her details of uh, the the will that she was creating. Not not enough for the house, but the garden in the house. And the pond in the garden, you know. The lily pond. Yeah. She would probably care that you mentioned the lilies in the lily pond. Not just any pond, yeah. No. 
The lily pond. You got to make sure you add the lilies. I'm pretty sure she'd care about that. <laughs> so another little insight we got from one of the actors, or in this case actresses, Ray Seahorn, who plays Kim, pointed out that earlier in the show, when Saul was looking for direction, and she suggested that he do elderly law, she said it's something that she had considered doing herself. And so it also kind of makes sense that she would like know what she's doing in this scenario. Maybe, you know, whatever kind of specifics of law are involved here, she might know about that and might would care about it too. It makes sense that she would want to do this for these clients. That's a great point. Jimmy, though, has his own old lady clients to deal with, like the lady that's just listing flowers, tons of flowers, including lilies of the valley, which is, of course, what Walter White uses to poison someone in Breaking Bad. I will not give details because I think there's a small chance some of you maybe are watching Better Call Saul first. Maybe it's only one of you, but just in case. <laughs> so speaking of Breaking Bad, a character that's not visually present or referenced in Breaking Bad is Kim. And so it's something to think about where she will end up, where her storyline is going and how connected she is to Saul. One thought is that, you know, she she doesn't make it, you know, maybe she gets mixed up in crime or killed or maybe she just gets removed from Saul. She doesn't, she hates him. You know, a lot of things could happen, but maybe she's still with him and Saul's just smart enough not to talk about her around Gus and Walter and all these murderers you know, that would uh, <laughs> use it as leverage against him. That said... If they were romantically involved, I don't know that Saul would be getting special massages or being the persona that he is necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Unless Kim turns turns down a dark path, too. Yeah. <laughs> or unless they're friends. They're still in each other's lives, but they're not dating. Yeah. She's his hookup at the DA's office or something. <laughs> <laughs> reviews. Mike Ehrmantraut's story also picks up just seconds after it leaves off in season two. We have the horn still blaring. It basically rewinds just a few seconds to catch you up and remind you where we're at. And Mike is stunned to see the note and the horn blaring. And he looks around and, of course, he wonders what the heck is going on. Who did this? He drives away hurriedly, gets his car to an auto yard, and immediately starts tearing it apart. And it's funny because you know once he gets going, he's going to just go really thoroughly <laughs> through this. This scene was a bit of an homage to the movie The French Connection. In that movie, there was, a, I think, a foreign diplomat who had some kind of immunity, but they had stashed drugs in a car, and Gene Hackman's this cop that's kind of onto him, and they're just tearing apart this car, and they're just tearing it apart, just can't find the drugs in the car. And it was a very similar scene to how Mike's tearing his car apart, looking for a bug that he assumed is the only way they could attract him to this remote spot. Yeah, so, very meticulous scenes. Yeah. But he does eventually find that there is a GPS tracker in his car, like he thought there was. There's, so there's four trackers involved in this situation. Number one is in the throwaway car that Mike was driving to do whatever he needs to do. He do that's not his real car. Number two is in his real car as he finds out. He gets home and he realizes they probably put one in his car as well. So number three, he buys to replace that second tracker and he gets the exact model. Number four is what replaces this so-called dead number two. He puts his new number three tracker in there, and they pick up his working tracker instead of the dead tracker and replace it with a, a new tracker that Mike can just ditch when he goes to do things. Really great plot line, I think, because it's bringing these plot lines together. Mike's going to meet Gus, and he's going to have flipped things around on him in a way that's going to impress him. We see the return of the vet character who has supplied Mike with a lot of different 
black market goods. It's funny, he asked him if it's a real thing, and as soon as he confirms, yeah, it's a real thing, he's like, yeah, I can get it. <laughs> <laughs> he gave him a list, he needs this tracker, he needs blinker fluid, he needs unicorn <laughs> horns. <laughs> as long as it's real, this guy can get it. The guy's like, yeah, that's fine, fine, just not at 3 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> so the main feature of a lot of the Mike scenes here is maintained, which is that there's just no dialogue. You see Mike going about his business, he's very determined, he's very patient, he's very thorough, and he seems to be very effective as well. And, of course, they leave this plot line off. So he finally gets what he's waiting for. He sees someone come to switch out the gas cap and takes his bait. Now he's turned the tables on them. The episode ends with him following them. Now, it seems like this path is going to lead to Gus Fring, but that doesn't mean it's going to immediately lead to Gus Fring. And maybe it's not going to lead to Gus Fring. Maybe we get to him some other way. But, obviously, the two of them are going to get together sooner rather than later. Visual elements. Because there's so little dialogue in Mike's scenes, a lot of interesting camera work, and lots of different ways to tell the story. Yeah, one that is just like filmmaking 101 is when he's waiting to show the passing of time, you see a bowl that's empty, a couple pistachios in it, and then you see the bowl fill up. They also went for broke because they also showed us the time lapse outside, which I love time lapses when they show just the passing from night to day and all that, and they do that a lot in this show. Yeah, these filmmaking techniques to show us how time is passing, they're also showing us how patient Mike is. Yeah, like as he's mentioned also, we get some of our best camera work in these Mike scenes when he's taking apart the car, the different POV shots from inside, the tailpipe, the view of Mike. I love those shots. Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul have been known for liking that style. But another little visual that they had in the scene that I didn't catch at first, like, until I rewatched it my second time, was the lightning strike when Mike is standing next to his car out in the desert. Yeah, that must have been a, a good get. They must have been excited when they got yeah. that moment on film randomly. No, no, they made that lightning. Oh, okay. <laughs> there was another good moment earlier in the episode with Kim and Jimmy in the office. Jimmy's coming back from having his confrontation with Chuck. And he's just sitting there in thought. And in this scene, it was just, I thought, a beautifully framed scene. It's in Kim's office, which, by the way, we'll talk in a minute about colors, but her office is blue. And she is on the left side of the screen in the light. Light is coming through the window, brightening her up. Jimmy's off to the side in the shadows. He's in the dark, you know, lamenting over his relationship with his brother. I thought that was a really good moment in general and a really good use of light and framing for the scene. Fandomedia.reviews. So back watching Breaking Bad, Cher brought to my attention how Marie was always wearing purple. And not just that she was always wearing purple, but she's always surrounded by purple. The napkins in the kitchen, her car, like her hairpiece, like everything was purple around her. And that got us paying more attention to color in general in the show. We decided that that couldn't be just randomness, that they're deciding to do this. And so we started looking at what else they're deciding to do. And since the show's in it, there's been lots of discussion, including by the show creators, for how they were using colors as symbols. Yeah, if you were to Google Breaking Bad color theory, you would see like awesome color wheels where they show like the color of every character's shirt, every main character's shirt in every episode and every season. And you see the progression of Walter from like dull browns and tans to pops of color and, you know, reds and yellows and stuff like that. And eventually more and more black. So Breaking Bad has its own color theory. There's definitely similarities to Better Call Saul, but there's differences as well. There's yeah. a lot of differences. Basically, Better Call Saul, cool blue colors are good, lawful. Warm, hot colors like red are, 
you know, crime, danger. Yellow is more false optimism and cowardice and Jimmy. And or indecision. Indecision. Even. And there's a lot of different things that yellow can mean. It's a little more malleable, maybe. But red and blue are very, dis- are very set that they are good and bad. Just, not good and bad. Lawful and unlawful. Right. Yeah. Not just good and bad, but lawful and unlawful. And also not just lawful and unlawful, but relatively lawful and unlawful. In an earlier episode, an earlier season, when Nacho and Tuco are with each other, Tuco is being the bad guy and Nacho is being the good guy, but relative to each other. They're both bad guys, they're both criminals, but Nacho was in blue, Tuco was in red. Yeah, yeah. So it can be relative, it can shift throughout. And there was a scene in the last season when the yellow and orange cup that Kim had given Jimmy, the world's best lawyer, and he's got the new company car from his new job with the firm, and it's blue, which means he's abandoned his yellow car with one red door, right? Yeah. All these, you see how this all lines up. But this cup he has, it won't fit. It won't fit into the cup holder. If you remember that scene, it was such a well-designed scene to enhance the meanings of these colors. If you weren't aware of this before, you will not be able to stop seeing it now. It's all over the place. The Kettleman's were in a red tent when they were found. They're wearing red-colored shirts. The woman at the old folks' home that Jimmy was working for... The receptionist, she was wearing red. To me, that was like a clue. That was the first time the colors like hinted to me at something that was coming. Like the old, they're, they're scamming the old people and she was oh. going to figure it out because they gave us that clue because she was wearing red. Like Sean mentioned, with the red tent, they also used the locations, the wall colors, the lighting to cast certain colors on people to imply things. Like in this episode, we had obviously Kim's office is in blue. Jimmy's office is in this orangey color. And Kim was cast in this yellow light at one point in the episode. The lobby is yellow. The lobby's yellow, yeah. And Mike in almost every scene has yellow cast across him. When he showed up in the show, when he stepped off the train, his you know earlier in season one, his foot stepped down onto a yellow line yeah. on the ground. He's but definitely... he's mostly in black and dark shirts. I mean, he's in jeans that are technically blue, but I, I don't exactly count that. Yeah, I think he's, I'm going to say, relatively good. But he's crossing over, and I think that's why they have him cast in yellow light, stepping on a yellow line. He even, by the way, in the scene when he's getting the tracking device, in that scene... He has red light shining on him, and the other guy has yellow light shining on him. If I remember correctly, one of his cars even had the red insides, the red interior. Yep, yep. The, the, both the cars, his throwaway car was a, a little bit more neutral, but it was definitely a yellow, beige-ish, tan kind of color, and his regular car is kind of a maroon color. So It's easy to get caught up in these characters as protagonists, but we have to remember where they're headed. They're both, Mike and Jimmy, are both headed down dark paths, we have to remind ourselves of that or keep that in mind, right? Yeah. <laughs> we want to root for them. We want them to win, but we know they're sort of not going to. Uh, and we know that winning is bad for them, ultimately, yeah, yeah. and for other people, really. With with some of the characters, they wear suits a lot of the time. They can't just wear multicolored suits, so a lot of times the clues are in the tie. So with Jimmy, for example, we start off with him in this blue tie with red swirls or splotches, and that's on the day with his chuck fight, and it got me thinking about the stripes versus patterns versus plain ties. I like want to go back and see the whole show and just look at their ties and see <laughs> when they have a pattern or a stripe, because I feel like stripes might be more on the straight and narrow or by the law because jimmy definitely has swirls and patterns a lot of the time the next day he just has a normal blue tie he's trying to work i suppose (laughs) 
Yeah, it's so. If you look at some other characters, Howard is always in blue. They even trademarked their own <laughs> blue color Have for their Lindigo law blue. firm. Yeah, Paige from Mesa Verde is wearing blue and has blue earrings. Ernesto has a blue car and a blue tie. And I think it's notable that in this scene, he's wearing a kind of light salmon-colored checkered shirt that's checkered with blue, which to me signifies that he has this connection with Jimmy with this this side that he was willing to maybe bend some rules for his friends yeah mixed loyalties yeah mixed loyalties basically kim of course is almost always in blue 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 even her eyes they they colored her eyes blue for this oh really did they really (laughs) i would have believed it totally would have believed it (laughs) chuck is interesting he's in blue in his scene with howard in particular but a lot of the time he's actually a lot of He's actually very colorless. He wears just black and white because he's black and white, I think, sometimes. Or even brown sometimes. And brown, kind of brown, more neutral. boring, yeah. neutral. But also he's in a very dark room most of the time. So sometimes maybe you can't quite see the hint of color. They still made sure in that dark room that you could see that <laughs> Hamlin's tie was blue. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is just a happy coincidence, but the Air Force captain, also in blue. <laughs> <laughs> In that scene with Kim and Paige talking there in the Mesa Verde office, I was struck by the statue. There's this cowboy on a horse with broken reins. And I had some questions about it, and it turns out it was built for the show, which tells me that there might just be some great symbolism there. And with Kim having this potential thing that's going to cause a rift between her and Mesa Verde, it does make me wonder if she's going to lose control and not have this big case anymore, which would be one of the most awful things that could happen right now to her and Jimmy. Mm -hmm. It also shows the effort that the showrunners (laughs) are putting into getting everything exactly how they want it. Another detail that came out is the Cinnabon scene that we have Gene with that that was filmed at a mall before they opened. I assume so they didn't have as many variables as they're filming, but they didn't want the mall to look closed, and so they asked all the shops to you know open their gates or whatever and to have the look of it being a, a mall, you know. But one of the shops who Vince Gilligan wouldn't say who it was, but just said that one of them wouldn't open for them, <laughs> and so it would have been out of place to have this one shot with gates down, and so he took a picture of it and blew the picture up to that size. It's like a billboard. Yeah, and like to put it in front of it. So it's like a life-size picture of the open door in front of the closed door. And he spent thousands, 10000 plus dollars to get yeah. this done right. Uh, I know, that's great. That's a great. I love that detail. I wonder who has that billboard. <laughs> yeah. This, yeah. If the store had found out that he was willing to spend ten grand on this, someone would have opened it for him. Yeah, I'll open it, man. Just pay me some. <laughs> a little Easter egg kind of thing was when Gene is opening his lunch bag. It's a Kansas Royal. It's a Kansas City Royals lunch bag. He's in Omaha, Nebraska, as we have seen. Not only did he mention that he would be in Breaking Bad, but we saw the police officer with the Omaha badge. And the significance of this team is that in a previous season, Kim was wearing a Kansas City Royal shirt because she's from about 100 miles from Omaha on the Kansas-Nebraska border. So it makes me wonder if Jimmy went there because Kim's from the area, if he went there and just likes to think of Kim and so he's going with Kansas City Royals. What it means, I don't know. I hope she's still in his life in some way. Yeah, with that... With that knowledge, it does make me wonder if Kim is still 
out there in the world, separated for Jimmy, and he has some hope to reconnect with her somehow, you know? And he knows she moved back home to Nebraska, you know, for instance. So he, that's why he picked that as his awful yeah. place to live. I don't know. <laughs> Audio elements. During the opening sequence, we get the very appropriately titled Sugar Town song, <laughs> which obviously fits the Cinnabon theme quite well. That song's by Nancy Sinatra. You know, it's funny when I was listening to that, I was thinking about how Jimmy's gone from being involved, tacitly involved in peddling one addictive substance (laughs) to another. (laughs) But I also took note of how when Gene passes out there, there's what I consider to be a Breaking Bad-esque song, you know, the kind of chime sound that they would have. I don't know how to describe it, but that's what it sounded like to me. Once again, I'm sure it was not random. I'm sure they, by design, wanted to evoke thoughts of Breaking Bad. And, of course, the episode itself revolved around an actual audio element, the tape. The old school tape recorder. (laughs) Oftentimes, one way to use sound well in filmmaking is to not use sound. Sometimes not having music can add to tension or draw your focus in a little closer. It's a neat tool that filmmakers have, music, and lack of music. And I feel that whole sequence with Mike and his whole process of getting to the bottom of this tracking device and going through the car and everything was pretty soundless. It was pretty uh, musicless. Here and there, there were some audio effects that had to be done. You know, the sound of the pistachios going into the bowl and, you know, the pieces of the cars clanking apart and so on. But music did kick in right when... The suspect pulls up in the middle of the night, right at that moment when Mike's target arrives. Music began at that moment. There is some music, too, when he's going through the car. When he's, there's like a montage sequence. They have music for that, and it's Can't Leave the Night by a group that describes the situation. Bad, bad, not good. All caps, (laughs) all one word. A clever way they added sound to the silent landscape of Mike's scenes was when he was draining the battery of the bug that was left in his gas cap. He did so by connecting it to a radio. And so we got to listen. We got to see that Mike, even when he listens to the radio, is just listening to weather reports, you know. (laughs) (laughs) He's he's a really uh, focused guy. He doesn't need a little music to keep him going or anything. Boring is the word. Okay, boring. Stoic, stoic. Stoic. Stoic, yeah. (laughs) Who is stoic? Final thoughts. So, Ash, what was your favorite moment from this first episode? I really liked just the scene with Kim standing over her printed papers, not quite able to staple or collate it, not able to make the next step forward, and I just thought it was a really beautiful scene. Sean, what about you? I have a hard time because I just appreciate so much all the effort that goes into every little moment of the show. But I think if I have to pick one, it's the confrontation between the captain and Jimmy when he kind of like loses himself for a second and then catches himself. And it it was so odd. It was so well done, too. I think that Bob Odenkirk's really a great actor. I think he nails a lot of stuff. And for that matter, so is Michael McKean. I think he's doing a great job, perfectly playing some of the, the moments when he has to handle things and he's afraid of the technology. It's just so well done. I could just go on and on about it. I should focus on my favorite moment. Favorite moment <laughs> uh, was when Saul is losing his composure and he starts to get angry, catches himself from being angry, and continues to say the, the, the words he wants to say, continues to make his argument, if you will, against the captain, but he doesn't have any heart behind it. He's like, you just be a 
pilot and I'll just be a lawyer, okay? You know, like, it, it, it didn't have the right presentation. He, he didn't vocalize it. He said the right words, but not in the right way, because he had kind of lost himself for a moment there. It, it was such a range of attitude and personality spilling out of him. I thought it was really awesome. What was your favorite moment, Aziz? I enjoy the fact that this show has set us up with knowing that there's going to be very long scenes where you get to see a lot of detail, where you see things happening very thoroughly. So the second Mike starts tearing apart that car, you know that, oh man, this car is really, (laughs) really getting taken apart here. And I just kind of laughed out loud almost right away because of that realization that this car is going to be, we might see just like every little nut and bolt. We might see it all just laid out. You may not even know it's a car anymore when you're done. Fandomedia.reviews. If you liked our show, you can go ahead and give us a rating and or review on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use. It really helps the show get noticed and we'd appreciate it. Until next time, I'm Saul Goodfan. I'm Howard Fanlin. And I'm Jonathan Banks.